The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Some of you know we've been looking at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, and the next chapter, chapter 18, is called Dhamma Fighting, which is uh, maybe not so politically correct. But the truth is, uh, in Buddhism, but probably more generally in most spiritual paths, there's a lot of this martial language or warrior language and instead of rejecting it because it doesn't seem politically correct or doesn't make sense, it's always useful whenever we're hearing some instruction not to immediately reject anything, but to take it in, look at it. It doesn't mean we have to agree with it or that it will be useful, but it's always useful to uh, work with it. Because if nothing else, just understanding why it's not useful could be a useful process for us. So I want to talk about this part of spiritual practice that requires maybe a more uh, intense, maybe more assertive energy. So that we don't always think of spiritual practice or meditation practice as being a receptive mode. It certainly involves a receptive mode where we accept what's coming and going. But there's also a fierce aspect to meditation practice in life generally. And I think that's what Anjacha is trying to talk about. There's an old um, line from one of the ancient Zen teachers um, back, I think, from China about if you see the uh, the Buddha, you kill him. It's been later changed. If you see the Buddha on the road, kill him or kill her. But the idea is there is something to kill. (laughs) We don't like that word, but sometimes it's nice to be provocative a little bit. When we see our mind for the umpteenth time going back into resentment, you know, well, that's worthy of abandoning. That's worthy of standing up and saying, no, we're not going to do this again. In the same way that a mother or father would stand up and prevent their son or daughter from doing something terrible or from some predator trying to get their son or daughter, you know, the parent would be fierce in in that protective way. And we need that same, we need to be able to access that same kind of energy or I haven't, but some of you probably have had cancer or other serious illnesses, and uh, we can make fun of Western medicine all we want, but when we're in a serious accident, you know, a car accident or have cancer, you know, we want to go to the Mayo Clinic. We want, we want those surgeons, those doctors that have gone to the best schools, that have all this technology and all this research behind their methods, uh, working on our knee or working on our liver or on our body. And just that process of putting up with the medical interventions and the medicines and the treatments, it takes a fierce kind of energy just to hang in there. 
not everybody here has gone through that, but probably most of us know somebody pretty well who's gone through one of those medical crises. And we know it isn't easy. It takes a lot of, uh, like a, a willingness to be, to protect, a willingness to do what it takes to stay alive. Now, clearly this can go to an extreme that's not helpful. And it has to be balanced with the whole receptive side of practice. So, basically what we're learning, just through opening to life, is we're learning how to respond appropriately. And sometimes the appropriate response is to be receptive, to be accepting. And sometimes the appropriate response is to be quite assertive and fierce. And the place where this fierceness, this warrior energy is needed is when a lot of the, what in the practice we call the defilements are coming up. Again, we might not like that word defilements. You know, it's like, I thought the whole practice was going beyond good and bad. And now you're talking about defilements. That doesn't sound like we're going beyond good and bad. But there's something that's in the way of going beyond our views of good and bad. You know, the views of our mind that split things apart into me and you, good and bad, this and that. And that's what we call defilements, you know. And uh, in Buddhism, there are different ways, like the simple way to understand defilements is ignorance. Not seeing things as they are. Being disconnected or distracted, misunderstanding or misperceiving what's going on. But that that basic ignorance is expressed as aversion and greed. All the different flavors of aversion, including <coughs> fear and anxiety, as well as the more obvious kinds of raw hatred and resentment, anger, and all the different flavors of greediness or craving, wanting and longing, kinds of different kinds of neediness. So that's just a, a you know, a, like the way that ignorance looks when we go looking for it. We, you know, part of what ignorance is is thinking that there isn't any ignorance because we're misperceiving the way it is. We don't think there are problems or we don't feel like we're distracted or feel like the mind is disconnected. But that's ignorance. Thinking that there's nothing we need to do is ignorance. Thinking that we're okay. We're okay because we're not being truthful, basically. And we conveniently have cut off so much of what's happening so that we can live with the illusion that it's okay. So in this regard, not knowing that we're suffering is a kind of suffering. It's actually a step in the the direction to have a sense, a clearer sense of this human predicament. And then the you know, the bigger view of the defilements gets divided in ten ways later on in the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha didn't talk about it too much in this regard, but a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha, they sort of formulated, like, all the different expressions of basic ignorance. So they talked about, like I mentioned, greed and hatred and delusion, misperceiving. But then there's conceit, there's speculative views, as an expression of basic ignorance, like trying to understand concepts. Like concepts will never 
help us understand what's going on. Or that it will never completely, it will never be a complete refuge like having some doctrine or some conceptual view. And skeptical doubt, mental dullness, restlessness, and then lack of concern. That's what I was pointing to earlier, like uh, not thinking, thinking that it doesn't matter what we do. And lack of regret, like of wholesome regret. Like, so we've done something bad that, well, it's done. Not that we should sort of take on some heavy guilt, like that would be skillful. But not feel, like when we've caused ourselves or caused others harm, not feeling touched by that, not feeling impacted by that, is a kind of suffering. It's a defilement in the mind. We should feel something when we do something that causes suffering. Because without feeling that, there's no hope for us, basically. That feeling of remorse is a corrective mechanism. And if we're not <coughs> feeling anything, we're just doing unskillful things with no consequences in our heart, in the mind, then we lose a very important uh, movement of wisdom. That remorse is form of wisdom. Same with being concerned. You know, we're walking along the edge of a cliff. It's very appropriate for a kind of concern to arise. Or if we're driving 65 miles an hour on a freeway, and it's freezing rain, and there are a lot of other cars in the freeway, it's appropriate for there to be concern. We don't want to harm ourselves or others. And it would be relatively easy for that to happen. So that natural concern arises in the mind. Honey, be careful. Pay attention. Focus. So the absence of these two kinds of concerns or remorse is that uh, also considered defilement in the tradition. So in a way, these are the enemies. And when you know any of these forces, let's just work with anger or aversion, because that's the easiest one for us to recognize as being unwholesome. Not I mean, clearly, we justify anger all the time. So even though it's relatively easy to see that anger is unwholesome, in the middle of it, it always seems appropriate. Like, yeah, well, I should be angry. You know, if I'm not angry, how am I going to put an end to this or put a stop to this? Somebody's got to stand up. Somebody's got to be rageful and say something. But later, with a little hindsight, we see, well, that anger, maybe it was useful for somebody to do something. But the anger wasn't useful. It was destructive. In, a, in the Buddhist system, it's just uh, by definition. It's like, if it isn't destructive, then it isn't anger. It's something else. Because you can be quite loud and quite strong without being angry. You can stick your truth without being angry. You can resist uh, forces of ignorance without being angry. You can understand that these people are doing what they're doing and it's wrong. And I'm not going to let them do that without being angry at them. You can do it out of compassion. You can do it because it's the right thing to do. We don't need to hate them or consider them evil. I mean, this is something every elementary school teacher learns when they're getting trained is, you know, or maybe every parent too, if they're reading any of the parenting books. You know, you don't, you don't scream at the kid. You don't put down the kid. 
you talk about that behavior is unacceptable. You can't allow that behavior to continue. I care about you, but that behavior has to go. It can't stay. It's not allowed here. Because people get harmed. And I, I can't let that happen. And so it's the same thing. It's like that's a, when a teacher or a parent or a friend comes from that place, like, I can't let you talk to me that way. Doesn't have to be angry. Uh, anger, rather. So when anger does arise, or any of these defilements, when they do arise, then you'll, ne- you'll notice, to whatever degree that there's wisdom in the mind, you'll notice uh, wanting to respond to it in that parental way, that wholesome parental way. Like, I don't want, I don't want this mind to get sucked into that pattern, get identified with rage, with anger, with hatred, get identified with greed or neediness or craving, impatience, or whatever your particular, you know, top ten list might be in terms of the agitating, unwholesome, afflictive emotional patterns that you have a tendency toward. And we want to we want to feel okay about that uh, sort of strong, wise force that rises up and says, there has to be a better way than just to continue down this path. I've been here, done this enough times to know deep into my bones that this is not going to be helpful, that this needs to stop. Those of you, those of us who have had addictive patterns over the years, have seen this at times in dealing with addictive patterns. It's like we get drawn in over and over, sometimes for decades, into different patterns, whether it's smoking or drinking or drug use or too much media or too much sex or too much food or, you know, all the different ways that, you know, basically a a habit of distractedness, like looking for... uh, some out from our pain. We generally drives us into addictive patterns. And then eventually we realize that the addictive pattern doesn't really address the pain and comes with a lot of its own pain. And, uh, and as that understanding grows, eventually, and sometimes in fits and starts, this sort of wise, parental energy stands up and says, enough. There's got to be another way. And I doesn't mean that that first time or even the first several times that that happens, that it will be effective. Like, we may say enough, and then in the next moment get drawn right back in. And then feel a little helpless, like, well, I guess I can't do anything about this. I'm just not strong enough or not clear enough. But the key is, when that energy arises, that wisdom, that wise voice arises, to respect it and to literally name it, like, to name it as a wise voice and to respect that strength and to learn how to cultivate that strength. And the way we do that is by recognizing it. It's not like some willful effort. That's not really wisdom. It's just meeting aversion with aversion. Many of you already know this opening chapter in the Dhammapada, this collection of verses from the Buddha. It's very famous where the Buddha says, Hatred does not cease through hatred, but through love alone does it cease. This is the eternal truth. So, 
getting angry at our afflictive patterns, mental, emotional patterns, is just another afflictive emotional pattern that's getting reinforced. So that isn't the way. But giving up isn't the way either. You know, like, not addressing it, not meeting it, isn't the way, clearly. That just means we keep doing what we're doing. But what we can do is we can recognize a wholesome force coming out of compassion, coming out of understanding that wants to respond, wants to act. And initially it's going to be a little feeble. It won't be that strong, especially next to the momentum of whatever emotional mental patterns we might have. But we can respect it by seeing it there. In a way, you know, the whole spiritual path can be seen, and this is a useful way, actually, because it takes the self out of the picture. There's a mind, whatever that is, and trying to understand it won't be helpful, I don't think. But there is a mind. You could just call it this. Whatever this is, that's what we're just calling this the mind. And in this mind, or arising in this mind, are different mental and emotional patterns. And some of them are really coming out of what in Buddhism we call wrong view, delusion, basic wrong view of feeling separate, believing in a sense of separation, being apart from the whole. There's me in this world. And those mental and emotional patterns coming out of wrong view always involve these things like greed and conceit and speculative views and dullness and restlessness and all the other expressions of agitation and disruption in the mind, scatteredness in the mind. So there, and part of what this mind is, is this collection of unwholesome mental and emotional patterns. And each of those different patterns have its own particular kind of momentum dependent on the situations in our life and how Often they've been triggered, and when they've been triggered, how identified the mind was with the pattern when it was triggered. But that's not all that's in the mind. There are also some wholesome mental-emotional patterns, like the pattern that arises that, oh, this is just causes and conditions being known. So if that's a pattern in your mind to see things that way, to relate to things that way, that would be a relatively wholesome pattern. Or... Everybody's doing, given, you know, causes and conditions, everybody's doing the best they can. That's a wholesome pattern. This person's having a hard day. It's not easy being a human being. You know, there are many expressions of these uh, wholesome mental-emotional patterns. And they are in conflict with the unwholesome mental-emotional and patterns. Because... They understand, they see the world in a different way. And in a sense, it's a war between two views of this. And in a way, this sense of self, me, is caught in the middle. And one of the reasons we feel so helpless is we realize that uh, I can't really control these wholesome patterns, and I can't really control the unwholesome patterns. Depending on the different triggers, you know, what's going on, what I'm thinking, what I'm seeing in my, in the moment, in my experience, different patterns will get triggered, and some of those patterns will have more momentum than the other patterns, and they will dominate the mind for a while, until different things happen in different 
patterns get triggered and then the mind will be dominated in another way. But we're not completely helpless because from a relative point of view, as somebody who's a practitioner, we can recognize this dynamic. And you can call it a war if you want, if you like that sort of imagery. But it's definitely uh, a, a powerful dynamic that characterizes our experience, these different patterns. And to take it personally means we're constantly going to be feeling like a failure because the unwholesome patterns, when they have more, more momentum, they're going to win. The, the personality, so to speak, is going to get drawn in in that direction, act out whatever those patterns sort of are pointing toward. And then to feel like, to sort of see, take that personally is to misunderstand it. We didn't personally decide to be a jerk in that situation. It was just that the rage that got triggered had more momentum than the wisdom that was saying, you know, he's doing the best he can. But we acted out the rage, you know, and said some things, and then that had all kinds of consequences, and now we're dealing with all of that. But we don't need to take that personally. We can just understand well, what happened. So in a way, in this tremendous battle that is our life between patterns that are wholesome, mental emotional patterns that are unwholesome, our weapon of choice is understanding. And this in a way is the distinct insight of the Buddha. Is this understanding that, you know, he really emphasized mindfulness. It's mindfulness that really liberates the mind. We have to bring, it's, it's mindfulness because mindfulness allows for this clear comprehension of what's going on. To really see that when the mind gets identified with these kinds of patterns, then this sort of thing unfolds. When the mind uh, understands the wholesomeness of these patterns and allows them, sort of supports them by recognizing them, and when the mind lives out of these patterns, these views, then good things get set in motion. But we can't, like, desiring, getting identified, like desiring to be enlightened, to be free, to be loving, doesn't actually lead to that. What leads to it is to recognize love in the moment, to recognize wisdom in the moment. That's what helps. Because when I desire to be wise or desire to be kind, I am starting off with the wrong view. Like this idea that I'm not kind, that's wrong view. That there's a somebody who's not kind is wrong view. And nothing good comes out of that except suffering. Suffering comes out of that. That's a stressful view to, call, uh, to reinforce in the mind that I need to be kind. Even though it sounds so wholesome, to say that to ourselves, that I need to be kind. But if we misunderstand those words, we reinforce the sense of there's an evil person here, or there's a bad person here who needs to go from here being bad to someplace being good, instead of this more natural, realistic understanding of what's going on. Right? Is there anybody here that's any one thing? I mean, all we have to do is be mindful for a couple hours, mostly, and you'll see that in those two hours, there are many different people we are. You know, we see something, and that triggers some kind of mental, emotional pattern, and we're that person 
for a few moments, and then something else happens, like we recognize that we've been reacting, and then we're a different kind of person when we recognize that we're reacting. Maybe we're judging ourselves for being so reactive. And then the next moment, we're mindful of that whole scene. And there's a letting go and a more sense of release. And then we're that person, you know, we're that wise Buddhist practitioner for a moment or two. And then we get proud of being a skillful Buddhist practitioner. (coughs) And we're that person, you know, the person who thinks they're better than everybody else because I've got this practice that I've been doing. You know, and then, then the next thing, and then the next thing. And that's, that's a more realistic view of who we are. We are these different patterns, and whatever pattern has the most momentum, there's a strong tendency to get identified, to say, that's me. And if we just are more mindful, we'll see how inconsistent it is. The only thing that's consistent is the identification, and that's why it's so seductive, because it seems like I'm the same person, I've been the same person all along, these 54 years. But the only thing that's been the same is the sense that, yep, this is me. But the what's me is the, you know, it's quite diverse. There's a funny story, there's a character in Sufism, Nasiruddin, sort of the wise fool. It's not really clear whether it's this uh, character is based on a true person or just made up. Um, it's from ancient times. Sufism is a, one of the mystical expressions of Islam, if you don't know, and uh, so Nasiruddin, forget exactly the background part of the story, but he was asked to identify himself, and he pulls out a mirror, and he looks at it and says, yep, it's me. <laughs> and that's that sense that we do all the time, it always feels like, yeah, you know, when we're angry, we go, yeah, I'm angry, and when we're feeling really relaxed, yeah, I'm feeling really relaxed. So there seems like there's this continuity of self. But the only thing that's continuous is the yuck, it's me. But what's me is, you know, we're all over the place. Even in one day, we're all over the place. So that really lends itself to this dynamic of the different forces at play, wholesome forces, unwholesome forces. And it makes no sense to lament. Like, let's say our scene is quite dominated by unwholesome forces. Now, in that moment, it seems to make so much sense well, I'm at, God, I should have started practice when I was much younger. Or, you know, if only I wasn't uh, raised with parents who had so many unwholesome qualities, and now I'm the, you know, the beneficiary, I've received all of that training, and so now I've got all this stuff. It seems to make so much sense to lament our situation, but all we're doing is reinforcing another unwholesome pattern. The only thing that makes sense in this moment is to keep planting and watering wholesome seeds. And we can do that directly by cultivating qualities that we have recognized are wholesome, that lead to wholesome results. And the most wholesome quality we can cultivate is mindfulness itself. It's like that, you know, old adage that uh, uh, you feed a hungry person, and you have eliminated hunger in one person for one day. You teach that person a skill, and you've alleviated hunger for that person their whole life, right? They can go out and get a job, say. And it's the same thing in our mind. You know, we could, you know, in every moment try to cultivate a wholesome quality, 
Or we could set in motion a skill in the mind that will ultimately undermine all the unwholesome qualities. And that's really this path of awakening because unwholesome qualities only continue because they're unseen. This is another basic principle in practice that you can confirm over and over again. It is not possible. You can just see if this is true. Don't believe it. It is not possible for the mind or the heart to continue in an unwholesome mental emotional pattern if it's being seen clearly. And I know you can argue, I argue with myself all the time, because it seems like I'm seeing it clearly, and yet I'm still caught, the mind is still caught. But that's the sign that we're not actually seeing it clearly, because we don't know. The only way we know we're seeing something clearly is it actually begins to fall away. The attachment, the identification with that unwholesome mind state breaks apart when we see it clearly. No heart, no mind is consciously crazy enough to be angry or to be greedy because it doesn't actually make sense. It only makes sense when the mind is misperceiving, disconnected in some way with what's going on. Now, I know it's, this is hard to believe because it, it just, these patterns of greed and aversion and all the other expressions of ignorance that dominate our minds a lot of the time, um, it seems like they have their own life. Like I said earlier, they have their own momentum. And they do have their own life, and some of them are powerfully uh, strong in the mind. There's a deep groove for the mind to go that way. But the problem with that deep groove isn't that there's a lot of momentum. The problem is, is that momentum is seductive. So when something has a strong, like I have a tendency to be defensive, I noticed it this morning in my morning sit, just feeling a little defensive and a little um, insecure, I guess is a big word for it. And because it's a deep groove in my mind, it just felt so right to want to solve it as a personal problem. Like whatever I was feeling insecure about, I wanted to think about it and strategize like how I could feel better about that situation, what I need to do or how I need to think about it. Because the power that the, the power is really like the depth of how many times the mind has gone down that road and taken that feeling of insecurity personally. That has, that's the depth of that group. But it's just that feeling. And in any moment, the mind in a sense can turn around and see it's just this feeling being known and be willing to feel it. And I did that this morning in my set. And it was such a, once again, you know, and we need to have these insights literally tens of thousands of times. It was such a powerful insight to realize that, oh, I was believing that there is actually a personal problem here. Now, on the surface of my life, in the relative sense, there are these things that i got to deal with. And some of them are a little trickier than others in the sense that it would be easy to cause myself or others harm. And I do want to be skillful. And I know I need to be concerned, you know, I need to be full of care as I address these different places. But that whole sense of being tight and that there's a person who has to suffer because life is difficult, is that really true? 
know, as a human being, life is difficult. We have difficult things to negotiate. We've got a body that ages. We have friends and family that we lose. We have all these injustices in the world that we're, like it or not, partly responsible for. Inequalities and just various oppressive aspects of our societies and our world. And this is, we're all inhabiting this space, but do we actually need to be tight as we take care of the business of life? And that's really the investigation. And this is what this battle is all about. The wholesome forces aren't saying that you shouldn't, we shouldn't feel what we're feeling in life. It's just like not establishing a somebody, not thinking that we have to establish a somebody who's burdened by the life that's being lived. We just do what needs to be done as best we can. Some things we can do things about, some things we can't really do much about. But we do the best we can without creating really a toxic contraction in the mind out of habit. And so that's what we're seeing this this dynamic playing out between the different unwholesome and wholesome patterns, and we're willing to sit right in the middle of it with understanding. And this is where we, in a sense, dig in, stake out our ground. And that's why it's so important. The daily sitting practice, going on retreats, is so essential for this path, because that ritual of sitting every day, even for a few minutes, if you can't get in your 30 minutes or 45 minutes, even sitting for a few minutes, and then putting aside uh, time for retreats every year, at least, would be really ideal. Where you're doing more time is really ideal, because that form, that ritual, reminds us of sitting right in the middle of this mind that has all these different impersonal but natural patterns, some based on wholesome, wholesome views, some based on unwholesome views, and they're in conflict with one another. And we keep watering wholesome views by recognizing what's that dynamic. We're recognizing the unwholesome views as being unwholesome, leading to contraction and stress and suffering. Recognizing the wholesome views as those that lead to release and freedom and love and wisdom, more wisdom, more understanding. And that's it. And it feels like we want to, you know, pull out the machete or the sword or the, what's the gun that they want to ban on the AR or something or other. Because it's like, that's what we really want to do. We want to, because when we're hurting, like we all are, every single human being that's not fully awake is hurting. And when we're hurting, we want to hurt. That's like what feels cathartic in some way. And that instinct goes deep. So the practice, you know, the the Buddhist approach is not to fall into that slash and burn mentality just because we're hurting. We really have to cultivate this trust and understanding. And it's a very subtle move. It's powerful, but it's very subtle. And so it's not easy to trust. It seems so much more easy to trust a slash and burn, like I'm going to get rid of this, I'm going to fix this. But that just keeps tying up the knots over and over again. So there's more to say, but maybe I'll open it up for discussion. We have 
a little bit more time tonight. It'd be nice to check in together and you could reflect on places in your life where you've used this warrior approach and it ended up making things worse. In times when you had this warrior energy and it really seemed to be the right medicine for the moment, really helped clarify and uh, lead to a skillful, a more skillful approach or skillful way of relating. Or any questions that you have about what I've said tonight, what comes to mind? Yeah, here. So I can see um, when I have an unwholesome emotion, like anger, I can see, when I see it clearly, it disappears. But if it's a wholesome emotion, it's a little less clear what happens when I see it clearly. It seems that uh, compassion or love, I see it clearly, it doesn't disappear. It's, it tends to expand. But also, at the same time, I, often I want, I want more of that wholesome emotion. So there's I'm not quite sure what happens. Uh, yeah. So what Pierre is saying, if you didn't hear him, is that uh, he finds it relatively easy to see anger or other unwholesome emotions, and they tend to fall away when he sees them clearly. And when he sees wholesome patterns, they tend to expand, and that he notices sometimes he gets attached. And the other thing that happens when we see wholesome qualities in the mind, wholesome patterns, one is the attachment that Pierre mentioned, and the other is that there's a good feeling when we notice wholesome states. And when the heart, when the body, mind starts to feel good, there's a deep instinct that I don't need to practice because I'm feeling good. So we stop paying attention. The mind stops discerning the wholesomeness of the qualities in the mind. And so this is why we have to really take our stance and understanding. It's like we never, we never want to put down this effort. And it seems like being mindful is a lot of work, but it actually isn't as much work as we think. It's like, how much work does it take to hear my voice right now, to be mindful of the vo- my voice? It doesn't take a lot of work. <clears throat> so to <clears throat> take this stance of seeing the wholesome and the unwholesome emotions We want to really, you know, like, because it's subtle, it's hard to remember to do it. But that's that's the trick, is when you see those wholesome emotions, how to continue that wakefulness with the wholesome states. And, you know, there are a few tricks, like, to get interested in the expanded state of mind. Like, like what are the limitations? So you find things that are interesting for the mind that aren't attachment, aren't greed, but are still interested in the beautiful, expanded, liberating quality of this mind state. That's That can be helpful to, to do. And the other thing, like even in terms of the body, um, because you know how the body and mind reflect each other, and so, like if you're noticing some quality, wholesome quality of mind, like kindness, forgiveness, clarity, calm, you can just use the visceral sense of the body and just see if that, the relative freedom, the free quality of that mind, that mental uh, pattern, can be expressed in terms of the body freeing up too. Like can you, you know, like I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk, that this is mine. 
And so the mind and body, in a way, it's all an expression of the mind. Because even the body, even sound, even touch and sight and smell, it's being known in the mind. Right? So, this, when we look at this experience as one thing, you know, this, we can notice that, to some degree, this has kind of a sense of free movement, and probably this has, a, in different ways, a sense of contraction or constriction, like things just the energy stuck or held or heavy. So when we're uh, aware of wholesome states, one of the, like Pierre is suggesting, they tend to expand, and one of the ways to work with that expansion is to feel it as if it's coloring the entire space of this mind-body experience, or this present moment, or, and especially the body, because the body doesn't move as fast as the mind. Like the mind can get colored by kindness very quickly, in a flash, but the body is still sort of resonating with the whole day, you know, and the whole day hasn't been kind. There's been a lot of different emotions. And so the body sort of has all that stuff, because it just unfolds more slowly, not as quickly as the mind. So by by being curious about the body and the effect of this mind state of kindness on the body, we're sort of inviting the kindness to get established everywhere in the mind-body experience. So the whole experience of the mind and body gets colored by these wholesome qualities of mind. That's one way to stay interested in it. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, my name is Tim, and uh, I've been aware this last week about um, a wholesome desire of mine to, to be non-harming, not through suffering for the people being caused for an unwholesome pattern of learning and wondering what possible sequence of actions on my part to bring about suffering for other people, recognizing that different people respond to different things, that different values sometimes are caused in their own set of illusions that may cause them to feel harmed by something. Yeah, well, this, you know, brings us to a point, yeah, um, an essential point, and sometimes we don't like to hear this, but we can't really be responsible for other people's suffering, because what we understand about suffering is that it arises from the mind or the heart itself. All we can be responsible are for the intentions in our mind, and we don't know like whether your partner or your friend or the people you live with, we don't know all the different causes and conditions at play that are going to cause their suffering or allow them to be free from suffering. All we can hope to know, and this is hard enough, is the quality of our intentions or the different dispositions that get triggered and arise in our experience. And if we can be in that mode of <clears throat> mindfulness, aware of that play of wholesome and unwholesome patterns, then we're, that's our way of taking responsibility for our actions. But you may do your best to be aware of the different intentions, and you may cause somebody a lot of harm. They may see your actions or hear your words and be really upset by it. And then you can do what you can that seems appropriate to help them or to make amends or whatever. But as you look back, you'll see that you were doing your best to recognize your intentions, to the quality of your intentions, and to act accordingly. And you're not responsible to how people respond. 
because we're not. That's just how it is. We're not responsible to how people respond. And we've all had situations in our lives where we didn't want to cause somebody a lot of suffering, but we have caused them a lot of suffering. It wasn't our intention. And we might have missed some of the part of of the cause might have been our ignorance, like our not seeing something that we might have seen had the mind been more clear. But the mind wasn't more clear. The mind was what it was in that moment, you know, with whatever delusions it had or whatever distractedness it had. That's how it was. And it that distractedness wasn't personal. You didn't personally decide to be distracted in that moment. That arose due to different impersonal causes and conditions. So we want to like when we do cause suffering, we want to feel that um, that sense of sensitivity like our actions matter, our intentions matter. We want to do the best we can. We do the best we can and then we have to let go. Because to hate ourselves for having caused suffering for another person is another act of violence on ourselves in that case. That takes ten. Other thoughts that come to mind though? Examples from your own life? Yeah, say your name. Uh, Paul. Um, I'm a school teacher, and the beginning of my work day can be the craziest 30 minutes of the week at Thursday. And on Thursday, right off the bat, I had a fight break out pretty fast. It was like two kids were joking around, the insults grew, and then everyone else started kind of fueling it. And then I found myself normal and very passive, or I'm, I'm pretty calm. I got to a point where a punch is about to be thrown, and I just got super mad. Super mad. Like, just used to, like, my death player, hold on to the voice I'd never used, and, like, scared all the kids. Uh-huh. There's, like, five of them. Um, and, I don't know, I, I, I usually keep it in check, and I found myself using it, and, and, uh, it was interesting, because after working on it, on my own problems with insulting people, or, getting into a kid and then kind of being honest about it. It's like, well, I felt really angry just then because I was in a situation with you guys. So I apologize if I did this, that, or the other thing. Like, that was one version of me that comes out when it happens. It's probably the same with you guys. You're really mm-hmm. positive and really compassionate, but you can also be very mean. Um, so that was an interesting discussion to have with them. Because they, you know, they, they got it, they didn't get it, and it was part of it was like, no, I can just be mean. Yeah, and we can, like I'm sure you do, you know, help them understand causes and conditions so that they see what they're setting in motion. That will help them make different kinds of choices if they understand what they're setting in motion. But what you said earlier about that your own pattern, I mean, that's why we really need our life, all the different interactions that we that arise for us that we don't really want, like even having to earn a living or being a sexual being and being attracted to other human beings in that way and interested in living in community. All of these things are inherently difficult to do. And they uh, they bring out, they sort of express things. I sometimes mention that in my 20s, for like almost eight years, I, I didn't date at all, didn't go out at all. And, uh, and I remember then when I met my, when my wife and we started going out, uh, it was like such a shock because I, I was seriously into meditation practice and yoga practice and a lot of spiritual practices during that time and uh, 
you know, you can get this sense that, you know, how far along you are. And then you get involved in a relationship. <laughs> and you're in all kinds of things that remind you of being 14 and 15 and things like that. And, uh, but it's so useful to see that stuff come up. Because then we have that uh, opportunity where we can relate to it with ignorance, like to hate ourselves for being aggressive or being loud or being mean or whatever, and we can understand it. Like, understand, like, exactly how that strong reaction came up. So we're not judging it. We're not saying that it was entirely skillful, but we just understand it as a natural unfolding. And that's all we can do. And then the question is, what can we make of this now, given that that's happened? And that's what it sounds like you did. I mean, one of the best things we can do when we act unskillfully is we can dissect it and understand how it all happened and uh, learn from it. I mean, the worst thing to do is to pretend like it didn't happen because then we don't learn from it at all. And just as an aside, I also worked in the schools for a number of years as a behavior specialist. I was a special ed teacher um, after a couple of years of being a classroom teacher. And uh, I, I actually learned, and initially I had that same sort of experience where it would come out unexpectedly and I would go, you know, this sounds a lot like my dad when, you know, Ma had a really good dad, and he didn't get angry too often. But uh, every once in a while, we got it out of him. And uh, and I just, I remember with some sixth grade boys, this is like one of my first years teaching in their mid-80s. And, uh, and I just thought, oh, my God, where did that come from? That sort of thing. But I learned slowly over the years, like sometimes the situation really demands you have to kind of meet their energy where they are, as loud as they are, as your energy has to be as big as their energy is, to kind of break the pattern that's there. And how to do that without being identified with the energy. Like how to bring in a lot of big energy without being confused by the amount of energy you come in with. And, you know, actors know how to do this, where they can, like, show up with a lot of energy, but, you know, in the next moment, they're, like, they, it's gone right through them. And you're, I'm sure we'll learn that if you haven't already, like how to do that. Because sometimes we really need that big energy, but we don't need to be confused by it. Time for maybe one or two more comments or questions, if anything else comes to mind. I would, I would respond to that. I'm a teacher, too, and I think that... I mean, I, I, I think that what you did was really great because, in a way, you used that warrior energy to break up a fight. So, and then after you broke it up, then you all of a sudden were reflective about it. And with the kids, it sounded like you said, oh, I don't want to be that way. You know, what happened? You know, so, so <coughs> like you used it, and then, but, it, but it, a good result happened. It didn't get, get too far. I struggle with the same thing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you're talking, I see the reason why you started out the way you did. See, me talking about, say, it was regret or having conscience about events, what have you, which, um, I think it up a sense that that relationship, I don't use the word guilt, but having a regret about saying something or being afraid of somebody, that's healthy to a certain degree. That is far more subtle than guilt, you know. And, you know, probably most of us come from a Christian exposure. And, and I think 
sense of self. You know, there's a real something. I'm bad. I blew it. I'm wrong. And that wholesome remorse it's, has more of a compassion. So the mind understands why something happened. And because that happened, people were harmed. You know, we were harmed. Somebody else was harmed. And then the heart cares about that. The heart literally cares that there was suffering and doesn't want that to happen again. So that remorse is the expression of not wanting it to happen again because it appreciates that there is suffering in the world. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Donna meaning, uh, for those who don't know, generosity. Yeah, because we care. And that's, that's this heart, you know, part of what gets uncovered as we practice more and more is we really trust the goodness of the heart. The heart doesn't want to cause suffering because we understand the experience of suffering. And even though that's, you know, your suffering is not my suffering, I'm not okay if you're suffering. If I'm a sensitive human being, it's not, it hurts to be around people who are suffering. Even if you're a fully awakened being, the heart is impacted by suffering. Now, we're not taking that suffering personally, but we're moved, the heart is still moved by it. So this is the thing, wholesome remorse is a natural movement of a sensitive heart in the proximity of suffering. It cares that there is suffering, and that caring manifests this remorse for any mistakes that have been made. We don't take the mistakes personally in the sense of guilt, I did that. Because when we look, we see there wasn't actually an I who did that. There were these different patterns, all of them impersonal, all of them with their own momentum interacting, and out of those, out of that dynamic, actions took place. Words were spoken, things happened. We don't impose or project the sense of a self who then is responsible. That's an extra thing that doesn't clarify the situation, it just makes things tight. And that's the same when we do it with other people. We you know, somebody acts out in an unskillful way, we want to insert a self so we have somebody to blame. You know, those damn Democrats or those damn Republicans. And then we have a phase, and then we have somebody to hate. But, you know, imagine whoever you don't like in the political world, you know, see them as forces of nature. They have the same sort of thing that we have going on. They have these different conditioned mental-emotional patterns some have more momentum than others, and as they dance and interact, then different words come out, different actions come out, and then other people see those actions and consider them wrong, and then we either react in an unwholesome or a wholesome way to what we see, and so much of the suffering gets perpetuated in this way. Let's take a moment, let go of the words, take a breath together. 
be inspired in the next weeks to recognize the powerful force of wisdom. See it as a real warrior energy in the right way, in the right moments. To see things clearly, no matter the force of habit. To be dedicated or devoted to seeing clearly, to understanding deeply, and responding from that place. So may this be so. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.